0: But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh...
0: Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and co-host Weston Williams. All right, tonight, a recent article by EJ Roller on the Vox website argues that, quote, if students want to pursue the arts... They may be accepted to an arts program without a scholarship and find themselves $200,000 in debt before realizing they aren't going to be able to get a real paycheck with their arts degree, at least in the next decade. We'll talk about the financial problems and potential fixes of a life in opera, and then with Thanksgiving later this week, we give thanks for a host of opera works and artists. Find out what's on that menu in about 20 minutes, and plus 9.40 p.m., two-minute drill. You get everything you need to know. From the past week in Operaland, with our team's hot takes on those stories. And of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847 866 WNUR is our number in studio. We want to hear your opinion on what we're talking about tonight. 847 866 9687. You can also tweet us at Opera Box Score. It's great to be back, man. It's been like three weeks since yeah. I've been. Yeah, you know, it's a, have, it's a little
2: been... weird to hear that introduction coming out of something that isn't uh, my own golden pipes. Thanks, you Weston. Know? <laughs> Where have you been all this time?
0: Oh man, don't ask. I've been doing many shows. Uh, our family. What show? Uh, I don't self-promote, so I, I'll let you guys hype the shows. Um, well, you're assuming we'd want to hype it. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, my, my family and I we also made the dreadful mistake of buying a house. Oh, um, so you like, moved? So we've moved about three quarters of a mile north of where we currently
2: live. Just a little bit colder, a little bit more of that winter air.
0: It's like six blocks,
2: it's, <laughs> yeah.
0: but it's still a pain in the butt in the house. We had to have it renovated and
2: mm. yeah,
0: just dealing with that. Nice, I nice. cannot wait to sleep in. If I can just make it to mid-January when I can nest, all will be well. Yeah, is that
3: when you send your kids to boarding school in January? Uh, (laughs) I wish.
0: Oliver Camacho, how are you?
3: I am also exhausted. Yeah, Um, but you look dreadful. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) No, um, we're going to talk about it in the Thanksgiving section uh, of this episode, but um, there was a lot of activity in my uh, place of work, and... um, yeah, it's it's all winding down now, and now I've just got to push through the holidays. Messiah season is upon us. So of course, got to mm-hmm. work out my trills and my ornaments
2: for every valley. You know,
0: mm-hmm. very nice. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Weston? Are you working on your trills?
2: I'm I'm doing my best. I might very well uh, uh, pull one out before the season is uh, over. Um, but uh, at the moment, I'm feeling pretty well rested. I've got. Uh, I mean, this is my because uh, I was working real hard for the past three weeks while you weren't here. So now I'm feeling you know uh, hyped and ready to go. I'm now bouncing around just, in my you seat. Sit yeah. back and not worry about pressing the wrong. (laughs)
0: I'm gonna make you work tonight, boy. Let's do some opera.
1: Chalk talk on Opera Box Score.
0: That's what you're listening to on WNUR 89.3 FM. EJ Roller's article on the Vox website says, "Quote: If students want to pursue the arts, they may be accepted to an arts program without a scholarship and find themselves two hundred thousand dollars in debt." before realizing they aren't going to be able to get a real paycheck with their arts degree, at least in the next decade. Link to that article is on our our website, operaboxscore.com.
3: So just to frame this, um, the author uh, is a writer, librettist, and an arts and literature teacher. And her wife asked her, would you ever uh, advise a low-income student to pursue a career in the arts? And the natural response as... I think, as an artist, says, well, of course, if you have the talent and you're dedicated and it's, if you feel like there's, you can't do anything else, like if you ask yourself, can you do anything else, you know, that's always the question you hear, um, and the answer is no, then yes, pursue it. But be realistic. Like, can you actually
2: afford to be an artist? And I think the, uh, the sort of the uh, interesting sort of dichotomy that was set up, um, E.J. Roller um, Roller's uh, wife, uh, I should say, um, was raised in sort of a kind of a, a poor environment, a poorer environment, whereas uh, Roller um, herself it is, she got $28,000 a year from her parents for for years. In On top order, of having her tuition paid for. Exactly, in order to make it work. And so uh, it, it kind of struck her that this has, hadn't been a perspective she would thought about. But the implication of this article, I think, is a little bit more interesting than that. It makes the point that, you know, obviously in the United States, a lot of low-income families, uh, because of historic um, uh, systemic racism and, uh, and um, other factors, uh, People of uh, uh, minorities, uh, uh, queer people, disabled people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They don't have these safety nets that their parents have built up over the t- over time, and as a result, um, any one of those uh, lower income, uh, different race, racial backgrounds, uh, potential artists that we lose is causing um, is causing this sort of you know uh, art art to be much more white, much more. Um, male, much more, you know, uh, dominant majority sort of uh, thinking, which which is sort of a poison in the art form of opera and the arts in general that we've been trying to overcome for Well, to
3: be clear, I know
2: plenty of spoiled gay
3: white guys uh, (laughs) that had had their trust funds and their parents taking care of them. But just a little more detail about the author. um, You know, she went to school, her parents paid her tuition, her parents are part of that income bracket where you can give your children up to $28,000 a year tax free and you don't which you don't, is nuts yeah <laughs> and you don't have to, you don't have you it doesn't count as income uh because it's like a gift from your parents or something like that and you know she kind of uh you know tried a couple of different things after undergrad and nothing seemed to stick and so she went back to school and she finally you know found her path but she had a lot of you know leeway to find herself and to not poor doing it you know like the odd jobs that she had none of them were ever important enough where she couldn't quit it and pursue something else you know well i mean
0: my path was very similar to ej roller's look she in the article she says she went to yale that's where i went to undergrad drink my (laughs) situation was similar to hers she says look i didn't qualify for financial aid so my parents paid for it that was the same way for me i obviously asked for financial aid didn't get it my parents covered it i would I would be you know forty grand in debt right now if if it wasn't uh for them now that said there's nothing else i've ever wanted to do with my life except be directing in the performing arts, so i didn't hop around from interest to interest to interest. Uh, You know, went to undergrad, came straight to Chicago a week after graduating, and worked a whole host of crummy jobs to try and get some money coming in. But, and I'm going to be honest about this, my life was never in danger. I knew my parents were always, at the end of the day, they were not going to let me starve on the streets. And that is not the case with many students that are going into the arts that are trying to find a way to pay for undergraduate tuition, graduate tuition, voice lessons, headshots, fees for agents, travel, young artist program, application fees. When I think about the expenses in the field, these are the things that start adding up. And as you say, Oliver, what we're seeing is that a lack of financial diversity is becoming a lack of racial diversity. Well, so and they, that's what we've got to try. And let's
3: solve. talk about Yale. I mean, if you factor in, you know, books and Ruben and board uh, and fees, uh, it costs about seventy one thousand dollars a year.
0: Well, now it does. To, when to, I was it, there, it wasn't it, it yeah. wasn't that much. When you were there eighty years yeah. ago, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if I was. I wonder if I was at you know the same time as EJ. But that's for I can figure that out on Twitter.
2: Well, as a fresh faced youth, I mean, I uh, I I kind of encountered. Kind of a similar situation. I, I was pretty lucky um, with with my college. I was able to get an academic scholarship, which paid for most of everything. I took out a few loans, um, and my grandfather actually um, he'd bought a bunch of stocks, uh, which is, I feel like is a very grandfather thing to do that I could never even fathom. But he he gave them to all of his the grandchildren as they turned came okay. of age. Uh, which makes me sound like very aristocratic. Um, but uh, I did uh, use up all of that, all of the money, and then some in order to pay off my loans. Yeah. And so I am actually currently dent free, which puts me ahead of a lot of my other uh, classmates. Um, but being now here relatively new to the world of the arts, I do still find myself, even though I do have a bit more of a safety net than other people. Even I, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I, I say without exaggeration, I am currently working six jobs. Um, in fairness, most of them are arts adjacent, not all of them. Um, and there is a certain point where that is, I don't have time to really fully commit to the art that I am supposed to be committed to, you know what I mean?
0: Arts adjacent, what a great phrase. Yeah. <laughs> it's Opera Box score on WNUR 89.3 FM, talking about financial inequality and how that is leading to racial inequality and a lack of racial diversity in opera.
3: So I grew up a little bit before you did, <laughs> like by 20 years. <laughs> um, and You being uh,
0: Weston. Yeah.
3: I um, grew up in Chicago. Both my parents are immigrants, and I have two older brothers. And we all went, ended up going to college, but I was the only one that ended up going to like a private school. Mm. And uh, I started working in high school. I had, like, fast food jobs and whatnot. And yeah, did you I, work at Long John Silver's? No, I worked so? at Bur- Burger King was my first job, oh, actually. So. man. But I never took for granted, like, work ethic and what it cost to, like, do anything. Um, and so my parents helped me with tuition at, at the Northwestern, where we're speaking from right now. Uh, but I still had several jobs, uh, one full-time job and a couple of part-time jobs while i was going to school with a full course load and uh, i just watched as my peers had like an idyllic college experience you know going to class maybe not going to class <laughs> hanging out afterwards partying on the weekends going on vacations during spring break and winter break mm-hmm. um and you know being able to just practice and just work on their craft as necessary and then maybe do pay-to-sing summer programs. Maybe they came from, you know, summer programs before they even got to college, like, you know, uh, for gifted high school artists, blah, 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 you know. And I never had any of those things. And, like, I was really trying to play catch-up socially um, and also with just the amount of time I didn't have, like, to do my coursework and to, be, to get good grades, you know. So um, I didn't go to grad school. I only have a bachelor's degree. I think I have the equivalent experience in just having spent my life dedicated to this art form and, and, studying, then some, I would and studying it oh, personally absolutely. and like, you know, doing you know, some, some programs that are a la carte programs where I just do it for one summer or something like that. But um, no, I, I didn't ever feel like I could go to grad school because I you know, left Northwestern with a huge debt and I didn't want that hanging over my head. And so I worked so hard after school. Uh, to just you know have cash and to pay off as much of my student loans as possible.
0: Well, the bottom line is that we need to work towards completely subsidized undergraduate education. We just need to raise everybody's taxes and make that make that happen. Make that a thing.
2: <laughs> I feel like we're playing into the stereotype of the leftist college radio yeah. station right now, but it really is true. I, I mean, the uh, I think one of the points that the article makes uh, the um, the $28,000 a year, lowest taxable amount you can give, uh, non-taxable amount you can give to someone. Um, and he said it's a, it's a figure, uh, she said, sorry, uh, it's a figure familiar to uh, the the uh, uh, the sons and daughters and, uh, of of wealthy people because that's what they're, that's what's sort of expected to get. Uh, but she also makes the point that a person in her home state uh, of Missouri can work 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, and make only $16,328 hmm. and still have to pay taxes on it. Yeah. Which is, uh, frankly, ridiculous. Um, because there's, there's, there's this... This is the sort of the problem. We, we're getting into sort of an area here where it's almost outside of our pay grade to talk about the solutions to this problem. Because this is not just an arts problem. This is an everything problem. Uh, this is something that needs to be solved on a fundamental fundamental institutional governmental level that it is that and this is just one aspect of it uh it's an aspect that i think is particularly important for you know the betterment of humanity and all the highfalutin artistic (laughs) ideals that we espouse being on this opera-centric radio show but it is one that is affecting everyone and it's only gotten worse over the past uh, uh several years several decades
0: Right. Well, it is. I mean, look, it, it is a bigger problem than just opera itself. That's what we're focusing on right. tonight, right? Is And again, until we solve the problem of the lack of financial diversity in this business, we are not going to be able to solve the problem of a lack of racial diversity in right. this business. It makes me think of Ryan Speedo Green, who is... He was the um, honorary chairman of the National Opera Week mm-hmm. this week, and his story has been just blown to all corners of the globe, right? This guy who was going to Juvenile Hall and I don't think, was he in prison or was it just? He was in the
3: Juvies, I think. I I don't remember his story exactly, but I know that he had a very troubled youth and, you know, he had a mentor who, you know, introduced him to music and then he ended up going to see like Carmen at the Met and he just realized, wow, that is so beautiful. And there's a black woman up there on stage and it was Denise Graves like, and she's incredible. And if she can do it, I could do a type of type, that type of story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And just like just being exposed to the arts unlocked something for him.
0: this is a guy who literally had no chance.
3: Yeah. And he, I mean, he came from a troubled, you know, childhood and, you know, he had anger issues or whatever. I don't, I'm not even remembering it correctly, but it was like one of those things where he could have easily have fallen through the cracks
2: but um, he was sort of saved by exposure to the arts. And this is something that, you know, we in the arts, we see this kind of thing all the time. I, I mean, I, I I work with kids um, for, for uh, Chicago Opera Theater uh, with their educational program, Outre- Outreach to um, Chicago Public Schools. A lot of lower-income kids, lots of... Uh, uh, immigrant families, etc., and um, a lot of them have never been exposed to the higher arts before. And when they hear it for the first time, uh, you can see something light up in them that that is just—it's—it's mean, it's extraordinary. But a lot of these kids won't wouldn't have the opportunity to pursue it because of these systemic barriers in place. Um, and this is—it's so frustrating to me because it's so necessary for a functioning society to have arts to have music to have drama to have all, all of these sorts of things that opera provides but we are we continually shovel it to the back of the priorities list in favor of things that other people that people might not necessarily connect to as well and, and can't contribute to and then they become uh lesser lesser parts of society and we kick them to the back and sorry this is my leftist leftist rants for the day but you know this is this is a genuinely frustrating issue that we have to solve, and we can solve. I mean, obviously there are programs in place. There are various scholarship programs, uh, grants, uh, and things for uh, for minority uh, up and coming young artists. Um, but I've seen I've seen people, you know, even recipients of those kinds of things, really remarkable actors who I've worked with, um, who who are as good, if not better, than many professionals I've seen in the field, and just weren't quite lucky enough to get into the the swing of it, and now they have moved on from from the arts altogether, which is a genuinely sad thing to see, and it happens all the time, every day. We have
3: to increase the access to the arts, but we also have to change, I think, the criteria for how people enter into the arts. I mean, you look at some of these young artist programs that are feeder programs from some college or you know some finishing places like Marola or Ryan Opera Center who only hear you know, certain other young artists that did Santa Fe or that did whatever, you know? And so there's like, there's this pipeline that sort of exists to get people to the highest levels in this business. And those don't, those pipelines don't always go to every community. And ostensibly something like, you know, the Metropolitan Regional Finals, whatever, regional competition is a way to find this talent all over the country. But everybody who's a singer knows that like, Singers who are based in big cities are going out to like Wisconsin or like Iowa to do auditions because they know there's less competition over there and they're you know
2: yeah and it's, it's a it's a good strategy for them to take, but it's just this, this is part of the 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 reason that in the mainstream opera has such a sort of a everyone thinks of a lot of opera as elitist inaccessible, and it's it's not helped even on the audience side as well when you have companies like the lyric who don't have Nearly the amount of cheap ticket options available for lower-income people for students. There's no standing room anywhere. Uh, it feels like in the United States. Uh, there's no. There's none of these options to even expose you to it. And so there's this greater and greater divide between the art that can truly help uh, foster uh, these 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 great ideas, these great emotional, this great aesthetic sort of sense of the universe, and and just and just. N- The the people who just kind of hold it back out of reach. But not just like the the cost of
3: a ticket to the opera, but also the cost of tuition and the cost of, you know, an application fee for an audition. Um, There should be more places uh, where that are very, very low cost or free where people can learn. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean,
0: uh, Tobias has, has gone off on that many times on this show, that Young Artist Program application fees are, are too high and that they are, they are making the field self-selecting in and just a way to... that, that, say, sports aren't. Whereas sports, you have scouts going out just watching mm. games and people are being judged on pure talent, in this case, athleticism. And is there a way that we can just judge on pure talent? Yeah, we need like a Bill Gates type guy
3: to like donate money to some you know conservatories. Tuition is free here, you know. Yeah.
0: Let us know what uh, your story is. How have you tackled financial diversity in the field of opera? If that's something that you've had to tackle, you can tweet us at Opera Box Score. Find out what we're thankful for in Opera Land. That's coming up next. Only on Opera Box Score, WNUR FM, Evanston, Chicago.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this.
0: Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are, with an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast. We are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or are proposed to the bare hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at OperaBoxScore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Opera class,
1: sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score.
2: That makes me think of Thanksgiving. <laughs> you know, there's no—I mean, how many? I mean, there's lots of good sort of Halloweeny operas. There's a few good Christmas operas here and there. I don't—I can't think of any Thanksgiving-themed operas. Well, that's a topic for another time. Um, <laughs> in this in this
3: segment, we'd like to take uh, some time to talk about the things that we're grateful for. Maybe some trends in opera this year. Maybe new recordings. Maybe some event, or maybe just something that's extremely personal. Uh, that has to do with opera, that, you know, keeps us uh, tied to this art form. Uh, Obviously, being able to do this show uh, with friends and people who care about this art form as much as I do is something that
2: I'm grateful for. Yeah, I'm Um, very grateful to all of our listeners uh, for listening in, uh, listening to us rant about uh, (laughs) things we can't control and some things that we can. And, you know, Uh, I, I meet some of our listeners sometimes when I'm out in the city and I don't know how
3: to quite react. Like I can't believe anybody's listening to this show, <laughs> actually. <laughs> but uh, people come up to me and tell me that they enjoy it. Um, it really does mean a lot to me, even if I don't look like <laughs> I appreciate the
0: <laughs> comment. I'm just shocked. <laughs> it's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Oliver, what were we just listening to? So we to? just
3: heard the finale to Rameau's uh, Pygmalion, which is a single one. act de ballet, uh, which was one part of a double bill that Opera Atelier pre- presented here in Chicago just a few days ago. Uh, They presented Charpentier's Acteon and uh, Rameau's Pygmalion. And, you know, I love French Baroque opera so much. And when I first, oh, somebody's calling. Uh, When I first was exposed to it uh, back in like 2006 or something like that, I thought that I'd found something that was a secret. You know, like Mm -hmm. it was so queer and so beautiful and so dense with so many different, types of art that I just thought, this is. there's no way that this really
2: exists. This is like a dream, you know? And Ramo particularly. I mean, just the use of dance in all of his operas. And he, he works with, like, <laughs> the worst librettos. I don't think I've come across a single Ramo opera I've liked the libretto yeah. for. But what he does with the, with the pieces is just magnificent. I just, uh, I well, love it.
3: anyway, the, the point being that, that Opera Atelier, the uh, Toronto-based uh, opera troupe, um, they came to Chicago, and they put on a show and The quality of what they do is so high, and the attention to detail to the set design to the choreography to the costumes uh, to choosing uh singing actors really I mean I know people say that all the time, but these people who they cast in their shows they don 't seem to Have anybody who's a dud? You know, everybody Mm. knows how to move. Everybody can blend in with the dancing that's happening on stage. Everybody goes for huge gestures, and uh, that's what it takes. I think there are some people that are trying to work with broke gesture, but if you're not committed to it, it looks really, really like artificial. Their
0: productions are in period style, period costume. um,
3: They're informed by period. I think they they hate to be recreationists, but um, they definitely are inspired by period aesthetic. Uh, When everybody's doing it and doing it so well. It really creates magic on the stage. And the finale to Pygmalion, uh, which was the finale of their double bill, was filled with just so much joy. And I remember I saw the show twice. And I just remember being in the audience just feeling like this is what I've always wanted people to see. If people could see this type of work, they will fall in love with this art form they will be curious, they will study dance, they will study music, they will study set design. Everything Mm -hmm. about their shows makes you feel like, oh my god, there's so many beautiful things, I want to learn more about it. And
2: Opera Atelier is based in Canada? In Toronto. Toronto, Toronto, yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I unfortunately couldn't make it because they were only in town for, uh, two what, two days? Three days in total, one family performance and
3: two uh, evening performances. But, yeah, uh, yeah it was uh, uh, so the company's, next time they come around. The company's been <laughs> around for 30-plus years. They really are yeah. one of the pioneers of uh, the revival of Baroque operas, along with William Christie and Catherine Tarosi in New York. Um, they started it all. And it's, it's a little bit, I, I, I think, ironic that the revival of French Baroque specifically started with North Americans. Uh, anyway, that was what I want to be grateful for. I have one more thing to add to this segment, uh, which is somebody went to Jonas Kaufman's recital. I forget where it was. Maybe it was in New York. Um, it was a couple of weeks ago. But they brought in like their camera. Their phone. No, yeah, it was just a it phone. It probably is a phone, but it's a pretty long video. Yeah. And somebody, somebody got a pirate video of Jonas Kaufman <laughs> singing Fear Let's a Leader. And first of all... I am all about songs being sung by the wrong gender. I'm happy about it, you know? And, like, one would say that Fear Let's Leader is for Soprano. Uh, But here's Jonas Kaufman, who's singing, you know, the four last songs. Uh, They're crazy hard. You don't expect the tenor to be able to do it. And he does it. And it's weird, but it's very exciting. Let's listen to a little bit of it.
0: video is shot, like, right up the guy's nose.
3: Yeah, this person was sitting, like, in the second row or something like it's that. It's crazy. So it's posted on Zsuzana Zabo Zsuzana page on YouTube. <laughs> but if you just look up Jonas Kaufmann, Be a Leader, you'll look find it. Look at it quick it. before uh, yeah. Jonas takes it down. Yeah, it's a 21-minute 20, <laughs> video taken on uh, September 24th at the Concert House with Helmut Deutsch on the piano. Um, it's a weird video to watch. He's you sweating s- like a you see spit, MF. you see snot. You Good see for him everything,
0: though, man.
2: But he sings the poop out of these. He songs. really does.
0: Oh, he really does.
2: It's a very Jonas Kaufman move to, to yeah. do that too. I'm so very thankful, grateful for thankful it. for yeah. him just
0: just being in the game and just yeah. being able to sing. You know, he, the guys had some major health problems. He's he's had some cancellations. We talked about that on the show. Grateful that he is still fighting the good fight yeah and, I mean when you say major health problems,
3: it. I think he may sound like he has like leukemia or something like that <laughs> no,
0: it's no, like no, vocal, no no maybe he he's vocal not like in Vorostovsky territory yeah here, exactly you know, he, oh just, my goodness, he might
3: have had no. some technical issues he needed to sort out, but you know.
0: it's opera box score on w n u r eighty nine point three f m George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams giving thanks for those things in opera that we are grateful for Weston, what is on your? plate besides the cranberry sauce and the mashed potatoes
2: oh man i was just about to make a joke like that but that's okay uh if uh, oliver's was the turkey i guess mine will be sort of a the stuffing (laughs) i was thinking more (laughs) like the asparagus it's a little bit to the side i was i was really thinking about this hard because i was like what am i really grateful for what's what's something that doesn't get the recognition it should um and i think well you know so it's kind of in two parts so the first part is i think one of the most exciting sort of um Cores for contemporary opera right now is Finland. Um, it's not what I thought you were going to say. What did you going to say?
0: <laughs> uh, uh, I thought you were going to say America. Quite no, frankly, no, no, yeah.
2: America. Uh, you know we'll. Been there, done that, uh, am currently there. Harsh words, currently. dude. I
0: don't, I don't know if I agree, but <laughs> no, America, America's Finland. got some good
2: stuff going on. But but Finland has got, uh, I mean, for, for a country that small to have such amazing composers, Eyniwani, Ratovara, uh, Kaya Sariao, um, uh, uh, what's his name, Selinen, uh just all these great uh, operatic composers and uh, uh, r- composing really, really good stuff Uh, Here in the 21st century. But I think there might be, uh, I think the real credit for that goes to uh, a record label called Odin or perhaps Odina. I'm not sure how that's pronounced in Finnish because Finnish is a weird language. The Finns are kind of weird. It's also true. Um, But Odina or Odin is a record label. That was founded in 1985, I believe, Um, and uh, it was basically supposed to be a sort of a record label that was sort of a vehicle for these Finnish artists, composers, singers, conductors, um, who just kind of, you know, started, uh, you know, recording these things. Um, And uh, they had a really big hit with Rautava Ara's uh, Tomas, uh, which is their fourth album. Uh, And they started selling a lot of copies in North America, particularly the United States. And they're like, oh, we can make this a sort of a worldwide export. And as a result, you have all of these uh, really good, really interesting contemporary operas that are getting um, really nice, really good sonic uh, uh, studio recordings of new works coming out uh, fairly frequently. And of course, they don't just do Finnish composers, they do all sorts of people. Um, and, uh, and so, what do you
0: have for us tonight?
2: Well, uh, the selection, I just kind of like went through my catalog and picked a random Odina uh, piece. This is from uh, um I think it was a 1997 opera, um, uh, it's called Alexis Kivi. This is from the prologue. It's based on the life of sort of the Finnish Shakespeare, as it were. and on a purely technical level of in terms of just balancing sound production that level of recording is just not the norm anywhere uh, in here in the 21st century. Mm. Um, I, if you look at most new recordings coming out of the U.S. or even most of Western Europe, uh, they're going to be live recordings taken from uh, concerts. You're going to hear coughing in the background. You're going to hear weird microphone placement as the singers move around. You're going to hear clunking across the stage. Uh, and having a, a, a label that is so dedicated to bringing it, its national art to the world, that it, it will invest in these sorts of things and does it successfully, I think is just something that I, really warms my heart and I think should probably serve as a model but for they other al- places. They
3: also record, you know, big names like Zola yes. Zakowski and Karita Matila mm. and Alina mm. Garantcha and Jorna Heinemann. I remember uh, Karita Matila did a, a series of recordings uh, with them, like maybe uh, leader recitals like Sibelius Leaders, like that, yeah. which mm. are fantastic. Mm-hmm. And this is when Matzio Mat- was in really good voice, too.
0: Matt Cummings had something he was thankful for, and that's that... Uh, oh, are we skipping you? Well, do me last. No, we should do him last. <laughs> I'll be the dessert. I'll be the dessert. But you don't have a clip. That's fine. All right. oh, you want, oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. You want to save the clip to yes. last. You know what I'm thankful for? I am really thankful for the storefront opera movement... Yeah. In the United States in in Chicago when you look at the history of opera in this country this is a relatively new thing. I mean even 30 years ago the big opera houses were the, the ones doing all the work. Uh, Yes, you had mid-range opera houses as well at that point, but really this idea of the little storefront ensemble just simply did not exist, even as recent as 10 years ago here in Chicago, to use an example. And now you have, say, half a dozen what we Chicagoans would call storefront opera companies that are doing things on an absolute shoestring. (laughs) They're picking... uh, They tend to choose... Uh, lesser known works by major composers 20th and 21st century music and are they doing them at the scale of again to use chicago as an example of the lyric or of chicago opera theater no because that's not the point they are doing them on this micro scale where you are very close to the virtuosity of it all Virtuosity up close. That's what you're getting. It's not to say that there isn't virtuosity at Lyric. It's not to say that there isn't virtuosity at COT. But when you go there, you don't see virtuosity up close. That's what you get at the storefront level in this city, in New York City, in other cities around. That's why I think it's important. And that's why... I think it's the future. So that is what I am grateful for. I also
2: really love the sort of the philosophy of the small opera, uh, store, uh, storefront opera company is that, you know, uh, you don't need all of this sort of... Uh, pomp and circumstance these massive orchestras these big grand halls in order to access that power of opera you don't need it you can you
0: can have it that's one aesthetic Mm -hmm. that's one way of doing it but it's not a requirement
2: exactly there's there's something more fundamental about opera that you you don't need to be dazzled by um the glitz and glam and the the champagne flutes you know I, i love it
0: oliver what was cummings thankful for
2: you got to do it in your best Matt
3: Cummings voice. No, I can't. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm putting words in his mouth, but uh, I think he's happy that Lane Tien Price is still alive. As are we and, all. You know, Lane T. Price was Matt's pick for, uh, his first pick for the OBS Hall of Fame, uh, which remains one of our best episodes. Mm-hmm. If you want to go back and find that, I think that's volume two of Opera Score Hall of Fame. And, uh... Yeah, I mean, uh, what an amazing American artist, not even just American artist, what an amazing artist, what an amazing voice uh, that uh, sang for many years and sort of feels like the voice of American opera, uh, at least the female voice of American opera. And uh, yeah, here's from a recital she did, I think in the 80s. Uh, it's, it was on TV and it's a really poor sound quality, uh, but it's just the last bit of uh, the aria from Adriana uh Yo Son Lumile Ancella.
0: That is crazy! Mm. Oh my god, yeah. it just gave me the chills. Like when she crescendoed through the, like the last There's ounces a, of breath that I she had. I forget the
3: story about that particular performance, but I think it is a performance in a venue that maybe didn't allow blacks before or something like yeah. that. And, like, she, like, shoots a dirty
2: look in the middle of one of those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Hell man. no. It's just like, see <laughs> what you've been missing all this time. Lee <laughs> uh, Toon Price is just a national treasure. May she live another thousand years. <laughs> uh, she... <laughs> uh, it's just everything she does is just... She just does with so much integrity and um, so much humor. She's just... Uh, I want to meet her at some point. You know, we should get her on the show. I wonder yeah, we should to... have, have her call in. Yeah, call, <laughs> call in, please. If you know if you know Leighton Price, tweet at her. Uh, get her on, on her show.
0: You can also let us know what you're thankful for in opera. You can email us, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Hey, there was a long-awaited world premiere that has finally happened. That news is next on America's Talk Radio Show about opera, WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago
1: live from chicago you're listening to opera box score more right after this
0: Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Alright, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on Opera News in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed.
1: This just in, the two-minute
0: drill. Time now for the fastest headlines and opera news from the past week. Hungarian composer Jorgi Kutag's long-awaited first-ever opera made its debut last Thursday at La Scala in Milan, winning eight minutes of applause. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban was in the Royal Box for the premiere of Fanta Parti, which is based on the play Endgame by Samuel Beckett. Tenor Stephen Costello has released a first solo album called Ate Okada. Stephen Costello sings Bel Canto. That's the title. It's a recording he feels was a direct result of his friendship with the late Dmitry Vorostovsky. Palo Alto police are searching for a man who allegedly robbed four businesses and smashed their windows last Wednesday morning while wearing a Phantom of the Opera mask. Over to the disabled list, Mario Kvitschen became ill during the November 15th performance of Bizet's The Pearl Fishers at the Metropolitan Opera, allowing for an unexpected net debut from baritone Alexander Elliott after the first act. Exit stage right, Australian conductor and music educator Richard Gill hey, get this, when local musicians found out Gill had just hours to live, they sent him off in a way only musicians can. They gathered outside his home to play his favorite song, And on this day, November 19th, the premiere of Kurt Weil's anti-war music theater piece, Johnny Johnson, in New York City in 1936. And it's the birthday of Bel Canto and Baroque specialist, American soprano, Amanda Forsyth. Hey, happy birthday, Amanda. That is your two-minute drill.
1: You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Yo, yo.
0: Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. Opera Box Score is what you're listening to. George Cedarquist, your host, along with Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams.
2: I'd like to have a, a little little confession here. Um, it was me. I was the man who robbed the businesses in the Phantom of the Opera mask. I knew uh, the police would find me eventually, but uh, I decided to go ahead and confess on the air. It's more dramatic that way.
0: Were, were you in the boat? <laughs>
2: yeah, I just oh, rode crowding. right up to the grocery store. Through the, through the uh, what mask. I was doing was I was trying to find uh, sweet potatoes uh, for my Thanksgiving uh, meal that I'm making uh, on Thursday, oh, yes. and uh, uh, I just couldn't find him, so I was just like, all right, I'm just going to rob a bank and uh, see who I can bribe to get these sweet potatoes.
0: Were you listening to the music of the night?
2: I, <laughs> <laughs> I was singing it, That George. was one of the
0: first shows I ever remember seeing live it was at the Fox Theater in Detroit, and I was absolutely blown away. That when that lot, chandelier so. came <laughs> crashing down... <laughs> At the end of Act 1, I, I peed my pants. I, I, just, I think
2: it's crazy. I think Oliver might have a dissenting opinion yeah. on, on the show. Uh, I, I, the first opera I ever saw was Dust Rheingold. <laughs> <laughs> really?
3: <laughs> it, well, the first that lyric opera, yeah, was *Dus* Rheingold. Not a great opera to take a 15-year-old to.
0: <laughs> uh, no.
2: My first opera was, oh gosh, what was my first opera. Oh, it was Magic Flute. Everyone's yeah. first opera except it for Oliver's. It should be Magic Flute. I think your first yeah. opera should either be Rigoletto without
3: breasts exposed. <laughs> um or something fun like Carmen or Magic Flute. I saw
2: uh Magic Sorry, something Flute, fun Carmen. Like Carmen. Car- you know, <laughs> Cigarettes
3: and like uh, and Magic and
2: Flute and Gypsies uh, yeah. and like Magic Flute, uh Pearl Fishers. Really? Carmen, yeah. uh Flying Dutchman and then a bunch of others. Yeah, yeah.
0: Pearl wait, you you're recommending Pearl Fishers as a first opera?
2: It was a weird was second bad. opera. I mean, it's it, it has a that duet is killer. I mean, yeah. it, it. I remember it affected me when I was like six. So I mean, you know, it, it had to have been kind of good. Yeah. The
0: tsurga Nadir yeah. duet, yeah. Yeah, or the no,
2: no, that's the duet. George, trust okay. me, that's the duet. So, it, it's yeah. a, there's it's another good duet. There, there's there a,
0: is. There's another n- good duet. When la we talk about and, uh, the Professors duet, we're
3: talking about that duet. We all so know what We're talking yeah. about.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I just think all it's kind of a dud show. I'm not.
3: Okay, so we're still talking
2: <laughs> about Hungary. Um, any comment on that? Oh yeah. Okay, so um, obviously, I think for the past like literally all the weeks George wasn't here, we talked about the whole situation with the Hungarian stating Victor State Orban, Opera. Victor Orban, the far right uh, ruler. We like kicked of, Eileen Perez off the show so we could talk about. Yeah, this, so. it, this was. Uh, <clears throat> so if you didn't tune into those shows, I recommend you go back and listen to them. Um, but uh, the deal is in in Hungary, uh, far right wing government. Uh, Viktor Orbán is considered a strong strongman, uh, fascist tendencies, whole nine yards. Um, Charming, uh, and uh, he's very much been into kind of using the Hungarian state opera and Hungarian music uh, in general as sort of an arm of sort of the propaganda machine of his of his government. Um, in that sort of manifested itself in donating millions to the Hungarian state opera. And of course, there's been a whole controversy with the HSO going on tour in the United States. Uh, and it's been a whole mess. And so this is sort of the latest one, uh, which I think kind of mars the, uh, the actual premiere of the opera itself, which is kind of interesting. Um, uh, this is a uh, Georg uh, Kurtag, and I'm sure we've all pronounced it wrong every single time we've said his name. Um, but he's a very interesting composer. He's a, He's one of those sort of. Uh, he's, he's. I believe he's what. He's 92 years old, and this is his first opera. 94. Maybe, and he's been. Yeah. He's been working on it for literally decades. Uh, he's sort of like the one of the last remaining sort of uh, 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 sort of avant-garde composers who kind of came uh, of age like immediately after World War II, the same sort of generation as you know uh, Boulez, Schnittke, th- these kinds of people. He's sort of one of the last ones left, um, and he he's one of those composers who doesn't do much, but when he does, it's kind of an event. And he does this uh, little short, little forty-second piece every every couple years and i was like oh wow uh and then um he goes back and here he has he, he's come together uh moved out of the sort of the 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 Weber and sort of every piece has to be 30 seconds long into doing this massive opera and it's been hotly anticipated and apparently it was a big sort of uh, success um but sort of under the watching eye of mr orban weirdly enough though uh the hso did not premiere this this, this was at la scala which is a really weird place to premiere uh, a sort of an avant-garde Hungarian that opera. That makes
0: absolutely no sense. I
2: think that was sort of the oddest thing why, to
0: me. Why they did that. I mean, the play
2: is really great. Based on the Beckett uh, play, it, it, yeah, of yeah.
0: yeah, we would call it Endgame. Um, it's a really great play. And actually, it, it feels like a great choice for an opera treatment. La Scala feels like a lousy choice for an opera <laughs> house.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I was looking at the, uh, uh, the pictures. I'm sorry, Why?
0: Well, it, I, I, I don't think of them as doing contemporary works in their repertoire.
2: Yeah, they d- they don't really do that. I mean, I guess sometimes they do. But even so, they tend to be really... If you look at like the pictures of the production... It looks like a production out of, like, the Bayernische Staatsoper or something, um, and uh, it does not look like something La Scala put on it, at all. It, it
0: feels like like it should have been done somewhere in, in Switzerland well, or Well, they got Austria, eight minutes
2: of
3: applause. You know? so yeah, I mean, they, they, they seem to like it. Uh, I, I, would be, I, I
0: Dude, dude, I'm not hating on the piece. I'm saying the La Scala connection, that doesn't make sense to me, apart from the prestige of that. I don't, I mean, I don't understand
3: why, why one would say they're not doing new music at La Scala. Do we... Know that for a fact? That they, they
2: do less? I mean, they the reputation. I mean, Ch- it, Lyric Opera Chicago doesn't do new music. I, I, there's, so. I believe, there's a New York Times article about the premiere of it, and there was a they interviewed some people in the audience, and one of the one of the patrons actually remarked that he's like, you know, usually if I want to see a, a contemporary piece, I uh, I I leave the country. Yeah. Uh, and so he said. It, it, the The patron remarked that it was unusual to see something like that at okay. La Scala. Fair yeah. enough. It's just not the reputation they yeah. have. Um, and I think the last time they did
3: new music was like during Verdi's time
2: or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, okay, we, we, we've nailed it with Verdi. We we we, we got it. It's done. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm
0: looking at their at their season right now on Operabase.com, and it, it is the one piece of this entire season that is from the 21st century.
2: It's just an odd situation to, to have uh, uh, Orban actually did mention um, in a statement on Facebook that um, this was a point of national pride because it's the first time a Hungarian opera has been premiered at La Scala, and this is what the Hungarian people are proud of. And I almost wonder if that's an attempt to save face that um, that they didn't have the opera premiere in Hungary. I mean, I don't know that. That's purely speculation. It was directed by Pia Audi. Now, well, man, that would be okay, cool I think to we've see. We've talked about this long enough. We've, talked, we've hey, talked. we talked enough about uh, Orban and company. This topic, please. Yeah, if you know more about it, t- tweet at me. Oliver doesn't want to know. <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> uh, Australian conductor, music educator Richard Gill, he passes away. Um, you can go to the video on on our website operaboxscore.com. dot com, and um, so musicians that knew him gathered to play one of his uh, favorite songs apparently which is the Dam busters march which is a classic anglican hymn
2: it is classic but i i okay i, I think it was a very sweet gesture and the, i think it was very nice but i i there's a, a, a clip on, on facebook of, yeah. it, of it and it's just like i i would not want to hear this in my deathbed this would be very bad
0: for me because you don't know that the whole hymn is about like into the breach, into the fray. Don't be afraid. Yeah, but it like... and that is clearly what right, this guy needed right, in the moment right. of death. Is he needed to be inspired by okay, okay, a so... very cr- highly regarded Christian hymn? Whatever your beliefs are, sure, that's what that music was doing for him. So
2: that my question uh, for you, George, is this: yeah. What music do you want played at your deathbed? I knew
0: you were. I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it would be it would be something by Benjamin Britten. I think. Oh. I mean, that com- to me, that composer, I have the most close association with his music having sung his operas having directed his operas i would pick something really light and funny and upbeat something from albert herring something totally irreverent and just charming and delightful
2: uh, well, how about you, Oliver? What's your deathbed song? Um,
0: Oliver's wh- never going to die. He's by no, honor. Well, that's
2: true. We, we know that. If, if hypothetically, if, if the uh, once your, once your universe were, were to be consumed uh, and you were the last living thing in it as the stars winked out one by one, what would you listen to? <laughs> well, I would just say that uh, when you
3: study Baroque music, um, you learn this word epicedium, uh, which is like a funeral ode. And Purcell is famous for Episcidia, <laughs> <Epicyde. laughs> Um And one of my favorites is, of course, the um, last chorus from Dido and Aeneas uh, mm. with, with Drooping Wings. But I also really love... Um,
0: when I am laid... That w- no, Later. no, it's, it's the one right after it's that, a, right? It's right after that, oh. yeah. No, I was suggesting that in addition.
3: Oh, yeah, sure, why not? Listen to the whole <laughs> opera, actually. yeah. <laughs> I don't know, it's short, you know.
0: looks like there's a rock band called Episcidium, but just...
3: Anyway. Oh, that's a good name for a rock band. Also, oh, I really. think um, the In Paradisum from the Foray Requiem is pretty hard to beat. Oh, that's good, too. Uh, but also the Agnus Dei from the Duraflay Requiem is also stunningly beautiful.
0: So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Y- you think you're going to earn a Requiem? On your deathbed. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of
3: singers. You know, <laughs> a lot of oompah pop. What about what about you, George? Oh, we already got George. Oh, Really? Okay. I well, the then Britain. we should see if we were on our Twitter game or our. Inst- I guess not Instagram, but if we were had good social media presence, we could pose this question to our listeners. Oh, yeah, yeah that'd and be then good. we yeah. could, like...
2: Oh, tweet at us what your deathbed. Because yeah, uh, um, who's tweeting on this? B- mine, process? of course, would be uh, Siegfried's Totus March because that's just, you know, how I roll. A little uh, predictable, don't you think? <laughs> I, I think it is a little on the nose for me. I mean, I like you, but...
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just... Bom, bom, I do want bom, to... Bom. For those <laughs>
3: of you who've never heard the name Amanda Forsythe before. Forsythe is spelled uh, S-Y-T-H-E after the four. Go look her up on the YouTubes or on the Spotify's. Um, She is an American soprano who sort of cut her teeth uh, at Boston Early Music Festival. Uh, She now sings like leading roles there, and she's singing really all over the world at Rossini Festival. Um, She's really known for her bel canto and her baroque um, her album of Handel Arias from a couple years ago is insane just look for her mm-hmm. Da Tempeste uh, it's so gorgeous it's, it maybe is the best recording of that aria ever made um, she's coming to Chicago uh, shortly to do The Messiah with Chicago Symphony Orchestra
0: let's wrap this show up
1: good call bad call on Opera Box Score.
0: Bears beat the Vikings last night. Uh, yeah, the good finally. Call. The Bears are 7 and 3. Don't look now. Does that mean we go- we're going to the Super Bowl? It most certainly does not mean we are going to the <laughs> Super Bowl. <laughs> All right, boys, who's got a good call or a bad call this I good week? I
2: got a good call since uh, George uh, refuses to promote his own work. Uh, Chicago Fringe Opera, The Long Christmas Dinner, the one-act opera by Paul Hindemith, uh, directed by someone on this podcast, not me. Uh, you can go check that out. Uh, you can get tickets on ChicagoFringeOpera.com.
3: But I'll also say that uh, along with your good call there, there is a mezzo soprano who is Chicago-based singer. Her name is Melissa Arning. And a couple years ago, she sang the role of, I think, Ruth in um, Third Eye Theater Ensemble's production of Nico Muley's uh, Dark Sisters." Is that what it was called? Yes. Uh, yeah. The Sister Habit. Correct. Um, and uh, she literally stole the show with a sort of mad scene lament. And I cannot wait to see the reaction to her performance. Um, I saw The Long Christmas Dinner yesterday And uh, the mezzo who sings the role of uh, Ermengarde, Tiero Whetstone, was fantastic um, and brought a very different quality, I'm sure, to this role. Uh, I'm really curious to see how the cast is going to react to having Melissa Arning singing it. One of the, I think, one of the most gorgeous mezzo soprano voices in Chicago, woefully underused in the fringe opera scene, but hopefully people will come come and hear her and that will change shortly. I also have to recommend because it's an amazing cast. Tamara Wilson and Jamie Barton in Neil Trovatore. It already started two Richard Tucker Award winners in one great Verdi opera. Two, it's like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's like, your talk is my peanut butter, salty
0: I, I got a bad call. Il trovatori at Lyric Opera of <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> I, this is like the third, <laughs> the third time since I've been in Chicago. I think that that production has been at Lyric.
3: Have you heard of Tamara Wilson?
0: I, I, it's nothing to do with the singers. Okay. It's to do with the production.
3: Well, that opera has nothing to do with the opera. It has to do, everything to do with
2: the singer. So I saw that I, production in Cincinnati, of all places.
0: Okay, I hope it wasn't the same one. I think it is. It's unbelievable. Hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's (laughs) Talk radio show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is John Williams. Nope, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra, with our opera statistics and on-this-day content from com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho for Weston Williams. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with whoever's sitting across from you at the table this Thanksgiving. We're back on Monday, November 26th, 9 p.m. Central, when we go inside the huddle with conductor Michael Christie. Plus, you get all your opera headlines and our hot takes on those stories. Join us. This is WNUR-FM Edmondson, Chicago, Chicago Sound Experiment.